Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello and welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, being a real estate professional brings many wonderful tax benefits. And for investors who are also high income earners, the real estate professional status is undoubtedly one of the most powerful tax tools that can potentially help bring someone's tax bill from, say, 35% down to 15% or lower. Of course, you know, this is something you'll want to discuss with your tax professional. But today we're going to explore the subject, its huge tax benefits, and how you could qualify. So stay tuned. My friend MC Lobsher, the host of Cashflow Ninja podcast and president of Producers Wealth, is on a mission to help you achieve financial independence as soon as possible. He achieves this by integrating the infinite banking concept and real estate investing to increase your financial efficiency and recapture cash flow that you're not even aware you're losing. MC shares the number one strategy investors use in his holistic wealth creation course at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. It's my pleasure to introduce Bernard Reese to the show. Bernard is the founder of 401kcheckbook.com, which gives investors direct control of their tax-sheltered funds for real estate equity and debt opportunities. And this is done by using checkbook-controlled IRAs, solo 401ks, and checkbook life insurance. He provides an integrated approach to tax and financial planning for real estate investors and real estate professionals focusing on their unique profiles and opportunities, which I think is very important because you always have to focus on the investor and individual themselves. And he is also the founder of agentfinancial.com, which provides tax and financial services to real estate professionals, including real estate agents and mortgage brokers. So with that, Bernard, welcome to the show. Marco, great to be with you. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah. So we hear this term thrown around as a real estate professional, and a lot of people don't understand what a real estate professional really is. You know, if I have a large portfolio of real estate, that doesn't necessarily make me a real estate professional. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, Bernard, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and kind of how you got to where you are, because you actually talk about a lot of different things, not just about real estate professional status, but just a whole broad spectrum of stuff. Yeah, I'd be glad to. And really the core mantra and value that I try to advocate everybody take for their own finances is recognizing that everything is integrated and you have to be an expert or knowledgeable, at least in so many different financial disciplines, if you want to get the optimal results. So if somebody's your tax professional, they at least have to be knowledgeable about investing. They have to be knowledgeable about the kind of strategies that you would hear from a traditional financial advisor. They've got to be knowledgeable and have insight in every single area of finance. Likewise, if you're going to somebody for financial advice that may not be a tax preparer, they've got to know or at least be familiar and acquainted and conversant in areas of investing and taxation. If they're a traditional financial advisor, it would be great if they were educated about real estate investing. It's great if your real estate investment sponsors are more familiar with their traditional investments. And that way, you and their clientele can really get the optimal advice. So when I talk about all these things, it's because I aim to be well-versed in all these areas and give people the best service and advice that they can get. Very well said. 
So today we're going to talk about the real estate professional status and what that means and who it applies to. And for those listening to, and they already know that they're not a real estate professional and they wouldn't qualify as under that status. Towards the end, we're going to talk about what you could do if you are not a real estate professional and you don't qualify, at least not today. So really that's a topic, that's an entire topic for another episode that we can go on for at least an hour on, but we're going to cover it a little bit today because I think it's important to cover both sides of this equation. So let's get granular here. Let's just talk about what is the real estate professional status? What does that mean? And what is it? And we'll get into the qualification stuff later. Yeah, let's do this. So real estate professional, it's helpful to understand what we don't mean when we say that. There are lots of people that would consider themselves real estate professionals because they're investing in real estate. But when we say real estate professional, we mean what the IRS would treat as a real estate professional. And that's a status provided by the tax code that allows for advantageous tax treatment of real estate expenses and losses. So real estate is a really tax efficient investment. And people that have the real estate professional tax status from the perspective of the IRS are best positioned to take advantage of that great real estate tax features. That doesn't necessarily mean you need a real estate license, like a sales agent license or anything like that. Oh, certainly not. It's got nothing to do with having a real estate license, real estate designation, a mortgage broker license. And in fact, you can be a real estate agent and not qualify. You can have that license and not qualify. There tends to be a high correlation of people having a real estate agent license and qualifying as a real estate professional, but they don't go hand in hand. And there are actually some really neat court cases that demonstrated this very clearly. So before we get into the whole qualification question, let's talk about why we would want to have that real estate professional status. In other words, what are the tax benefits of having that status? Because that's really what it's all about. Yeah. So it's good to understand, to understand and appreciate what the tax benefits of the real estate pro is it's understanding what is about that makes real estate really unique and really attractive from a tax perspective. And the cool thing about real estate is that you can have paper losses. You can be making money. You can be having cash flow. You can have an appreciation, financial appreciation of your asset. So you're really having all this gain and income and nevertheless claim a tax loss. And the reason why we have that is because real estate is really capital intensive. And so it has high depreciation expenses. Depreciation is a non-cash expense they can claim on your tax return. And so it's money that's not, no money leaves your pocket, but it's an expense on your tax return that decreases your income. And oftentimes it can create a loss. And even if it wouldn't, so to speak, naturally create a loss, there are steps that you can take, tax strategies that can be implemented that can turn that depreciation into a loss. And then what happens? So here's what happens in tax land. You know, non-cash losses are a really exciting thing to have because you can take that loss and you can claim it to offset other income. So you've got a loss somewhere in your portfolio, in your income, in a business, in an investment, and then you've got income elsewhere. So you've got a loss in one place and somewhere else you've got income. Well, you can take that loss and net it against the income and then show and reduce your taxable income. However, if that loss is what's treated as a passive loss, there are limitations 
and to how whether or not you can use that loss. So that's a bit of a mouthful. I guess there are probably lots of questions and lots of clarification. So let's flesh it out. What, what questions do you have after hearing that? Well, I think the key point that you made there, and, and this is the rub, is that if you don't have that status, you cannot take those losses through your real estate. Well, they're passive losses, but you don't need to literally spend a dime or a penny in order to get them. They're paper losses. That's, I guess, the term I was looking for. So you can take these paper losses, which means that even though you're cash flow positive, you're putting money in your pocket every month, you still have the ability to show a loss on paper, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing about real estate. But you can only apply that to other passive income. You cannot apply that to active income that you get from your W-2, your 1099, other types of investments that are classified as non-passive. And so there's this big, thick brick wall barrier between being able to utilize and tap into those losses and apply them to other types of income to shelter or defer or reduce your taxable income. And so when you have this real estate professional status, if I understand everything you just said correctly, when you have that status, you can apply those losses to any type of income. That's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head. The benefit of that is being able to take somebody has got W-2 income or 1099 income for being self-employed. If they've got real estate investments, being able to take those paper losses and offset their W-2 income and 1099 income. Yeah. So I guess another way of saying that is that losses from any real estate activity are per se passive and they cannot be offset against income that is not passive income or passive activity. That's exactly activities. it. So the Congress instituted these rules, the passive activity loss limitations, saying that passive losses can only offset passive income. But that's because going back pre-1986, that's exactly what people were doing. They were high net worth individuals were setting up investing in these tax shelters, putting money into real estate. That was kind of either they would break even or they would have positive cash flow. But the key thing they were looking for was to get those losses. And if you're a high tax bracket payer, every dollar of loss is worth 50 cents. So between state and federal. So they were just investing in these real estate deals to get the losses. Congress stepped in and said, hey, we've got to put an end to this because people aren't putting money into these deals, not because they're great deals, it's just for the tax benefits. So they said, you can't put money in here and then claim the loss. You can only use that loss against the other passive income. And there's some other exceptions. And there was a bit of evolution here. So initially, that applied to everybody. And lots of people got pulled into this and complained that this is not equitable. I am a real estate professional. That's my business. Somebody's a doctor and he's got his income there. I can understand, perhaps it's understandable why Congress would give it that treatment. But if I'm in a real estate business, then I should be able to treat all my real estate income and losses the same. Because for me, it's not just a tax shelter. This is what I do. So in the early 90s, the real estate professional, the law was updated for the real estate professional status and to allow those that qualify as real estate professionals to claim losses against their active income. Very interesting and very well said. So the big question now is, how do I qualify for the real estate professional status? I know it's going to sound a little tricky. There's three main parts to it, but why don't we uh, detail those out? How do I qualify to be a real estate professional? Okay. Let's talk about the word material participation. Okay. Material participation 
is a kind of a threshold, a barrier that you need for something to be treated as active. And there are seven tests to determine whether or not something is an activity in which you materially participate. Some of the more common ones of the seven is 500 hours or more in an activity, or if you're the person that's really doing everything. So even if you do one hour, but nobody else is doing anything else, so you can be a material participant in that activity, or you can do more than 100 hours and nobody else exceeds that. So even if there are multiple people involved in an activity, if you hit that 100 hours and nobody else exceeds that, then you're a material participant in the activity. So that concept is going to be a building block to understanding qualifying for real estate professional status. So getting into that, you have to, the first threshold is you've got to have 750 hours in real estate activities in which you materially participate. So there's a lot going on there. So there's a 750 hour threshold per year that you need in order to qualify. But only hours that are done in an activity in which you materially participate count towards that. So if somebody's got lots of thousand hours of real estate activity, but 500 of those are in activities in which they don't materially participate, that doesn't count. So we need 750 hours in real estate activities in which they materially participate. So if you've got a limited partnership investment that you're doing, then it's not likely that you materially participated in those. So those hours won't count towards a 750. So we need 750 hours across real estate activities in which you materially participate. That's the first test. So what would be a couple of quick examples? Obviously, if you directly manage your own properties, that's material participation. Would managing your property managers, although that's not a time-intensive activity, would that qualify as material participation? So let's distinguish what that refers to. When we say managing your managers, that can definitely count. However, you don't want to fall into what's called just investor-type activity. If it's something is limited to investor-type activity, which means looking over the financials, that doesn't count. But if you're actually managing the managers, which is what real estate professionals that grow their portfolio do, that certainly counts. Okay. What else would qualify? Because we're talking to an audience here that for the most part are passive real estate investors, meaning that they're obviously not actively involved, although they may be in, at different levels. But for the most part, you know, they have a full-time career. They're dealing with their family and friends. They've got a life. They're not involved on a day-to-day basis with real estate. So to accumulate 750 hours over the course of a year might be a bit of a challenge. So what other activities would qualify as material participation? There are, broadly speaking, any activity. I'll kind of toss out the categories that the tax code give us and anything within that counts. And it's also helpful to outline what doesn't count, and that'll probably provide the contrast that'll clarify things. So the list includes development, construction, acquisition or conversion, rental, management, operation, leasing, and brokerage. So if somebody is managing and managing the manager certainly qualifies, that's operations. If somebody's involved in brokering or selling homes or selling real estate, that counts. But if it's outside of that activity, then it's not going to count towards that. And a way to illustrate how the IRS approached that is there was a mortgage broker that claimed real estate professional status. And the IRS said, that's not really a real estate activity. We're just getting involved in the funding side. And that did not qualify. 
So the IRS tries to be sticklers to the rules and tries to make sure you're truly a real estate professional. And the way for those people that are perhaps passive investors to meet that status, they've got full-time jobs, is to have a spouse potentially meet that requirement. Because if they're married, only one of the spouses has to meet that requirement. So what we try to encourage people to do is have a spouse be a real estate agent. So you don't have to be actually be involved in operations. A real estate agent is a job. It's not a job. That's precisely it. You're kind of your own boss. You can make your own hours. And it's something that's well-suited. To, you know, if there's a spouse that perhaps is even a stay-at-home Stay at home is non working. So, somebody's a high net worth professional, they may have a spouse that has time in their hands. And being a real estate agent is something that they can do and have the flexibility that they want and still free up these losses. Okay. So, I was reading somewhere that when it comes to determining material participation, the IRS looks at each and every rental property separately, or you as the taxpayer can elect to have all your rental properties treated as one entity, and then the hours would be applied across the board. I don't know if that's making any sense, but what is the difference between the- Okay, let's jump into this, because there really is so much more complexity to this than you're going to find generally on the web or in a podcast. It's kind of technical. So there are multiple phases to this. So there are the two qualifications, which are the 750 hours. There's one that we didn't touch on yet, which is that the real estate activity has to be the greatest activity kind of that you do. So if you have two jobs, you have to have more time in the real estate activities than you have in anything else. Now, once we determine that even if somebody qualifies as a real estate professional, that's the first hurdle, qualifying as the real estate professional. However, qualifying as a real estate professional, it's not a total game changer. It doesn't totally change the rules of the game. In order to claim a real estate loss, you can only claim losses from real estate activities in which you materially participate. So we're coming back to that material participation. That's the operative word throughout this calculation. So real estate rental is what's called a per se passive activity. If somebody is not a real estate professional, if they spend 500 hours on a real estate activity, it will still be treated as a passive activity, a passive loss. Real estate rental is kind of set aside that even if you have something that would be treated as material participation for any other business, real estate rental is a per se passive activity. What the real estate professional status allows, it says, okay, if you're a real estate professional, we'll treat real estate just like any other investment, any other asset. And if you materially participate in that real estate rental, then we'll treat it as active income. So once somebody has even meets a threshold for being a real estate professional, we still have to assess whether they materially participated in that real estate activity that had a loss. And that's where the aggregation rules come in. And it's good to, before we even get into aggregation, maybe it's good to recap this and see if the pieces are falling into place. It seems that the whole topic of material participation is the area of complexity. It's, I wish it was as simple as a litmus test to just say, yes, you know, you qualify, you don't, but it sounds like you almost need a a tax professional working with you to go through essentially a list of checkboxes to make sure that you've met all the requirements. 
it sounds like yes. the IRS would be doing the exact same thing anyway. Yes, this has been a highly contested year by the IRS, and maybe it's good to have a little anecdote. So we've got a tenured professor who's got a huge portfolio, and he claimed real estate professional status. The IRS came after him. He said, "How can, you're, you're a professor. How can you be a real estate professional? It's imp- unlikely that you spent more time in real estate than you did teaching. We had to explain to the IRS that he's a tenured professor. He teaches a couple hours a week, and he's able to spend the rest of his time devoted to his real estate holdings, which are substantial. So you can be a professional in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. If you're a tenured professor, it's probably more likely, and you can be a real estate pro. But to get back to the technical stuff, the key thing to realize is that real estate is treated as a per se passive activity, that even if you materially participate, if you spend 500 hours in a real estate activity, which would make any other type of activity non-passive within real estate, it's still treated as passive. Unless you're a real estate professional, that unlocks it. But after being a real estate professional, you still need to prove that you materially participated in each activity for which you're claiming a loss. Now, it's unlikely, say somebody's got 100 rentals or he's got multiple real estate businesses that he spent 500 hours on each one. So the aggregation will say, I'm going to treat all my real estate businesses as one. And if I spent over 500 hours between those, then he'll be treated as materially participating in every single one of those activities. That sounds like it would be the way to go anyway, because you want to aggregate all the time you spend across the board on every single property. I mean, anything related to real estate. Yeah. So you're, here's you're always going to aggregate it. So not always. Here's the challenge. Everything is, there's always, and that's the thing with tax code and tax regulations. There's always nuance and there's always the unknown unknowns. So it's very common. People read this stuff on the internet and they'll say, hey, I'm good to go. Real estate professional, aggregation. You can find this stuff on the internet. But say somebody's got a limited partnership investment. And if you aggregate with a limited partnership investment, you can make it much harder to meet the thresholds because limited partnership activities, if you're a limited partner, there's kind of a presumption that you're not a material participant. Right. And the threshold for meeting the material participation to meeting that threshold gets you much higher. And then you have to meet that across all your entire portfolio. Right. You're making me wonder how often people get audited when they claim the real estate professional status. Is that like an automatic red flag with the IRS? It's an automatic red flag if you also got a W-2 on there that says you're a doctor. It kind of seems internally inconsistent with what you otherwise do because you need these 750 hours. And there's also the requirement that you spent more time in real estate than on other things. So if you're a doctor, it's just unlikely that you spent more time doing right. real estate stuff than doing your profession. Okay. But otherwise, it's not necessarily a flag. But for anybody that does claim it, a key thing that they've got to do and a key thing across any tax issues is documentation documentation, documentation, documentation. Because once you come into an audit and you tell the IRS or in the courts, and there's lots of literature and court cases about that in every area where you not have records, if you don't have the records, as if it never happened. There are even cases where you have, and if you read the case law and you read what the judge said, the judge will say, you know what, based on what you do, it kind of seems reasonable 
that you spent this amount of time doing it, but you don't have records. So it doesn't count. <laughs> wow. What a blow that would be. Yeah. So the key thing is when somebody wants to get into this, it needs foresight. You need thinking ahead, get yourself an Excel spreadsheet somewhere where you're jotting it down and you're having contemporaneous records. You don't need proof, but you need to have what's called contemporaneous records that you kind of kept those records as you did them. And you want to kind of set yourself up at the end of the day, end of the week, you jot those down because the audit may happen three years later. And at yeah. that point, those guesstimates are not going to help. We keep talking about an individual here, but can an LLC be classified as a real estate professional or does it have to be the individual? So it's going to be the individual. The key is to understand that when an LLC anyway, the losses, the activity of an LLC just flow through to the individual. And that's why real estate, you'll always hold real estate in an LLC so that the losses will flow through to your personal tax return. And then it's on the individual tax return, we determine whether or not you're a real estate professional. Right. So you can have multiple investors in a single asset. Some will be claiming the losses because they'll be electing real estate professional status and others will not, and they'll have suspended losses. Okay. So will an investor always benefit from being a real estate professional if they claim that status and they own rentals? Do they always have that status or is this something that has a fixed period of time? You don't have to do it. It's always advantageous, but it's a year by year basis. So you're not real estate professional forever just because you had it one year. So you've got to meet that requirement each and every year, but it's definitely advantageous. And it's good to talk about some of the strategies that you can use to maximize being a real estate professional. And if you're not a real estate professional, what should you be doing? So if you're a real estate professional, what you're looking to do is maximize your real estate losses. And the best strategy for that is what's called cost segregation, subject in and of itself. But that is the most powerful strategy for creating real estate losses. And what that allows you to do is rather than claiming depreciation over 27 and a half or 40 years, it lets you take 27 and a half years of depreciation and move so much of it into year one. So rather than having claiming those over time, those losses happen up front. It's accelerating your depreciation losses. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful technique. And I think we've talked about that in a past episode and probably wouldn't hurt to revisit that because it is a way to accelerate your depreciation and take a bigger deduction today rather than wait 27 and a half years or however long it may be. Before we get into this alternative concept that you're talking about or, or you know, these other options, let me ask another quick question or two in wrapping up the real estate professional status. You know, it seems that this is an area that a lot of investors will fall into holes, like into these traps, and they make mistakes. And then they don't realize they made a mistake until it's too late, until they have an audit or they realize, well, I can't claim what I thought I could claim. So what is the biggest mistake that investors make when they claim this status? So what I see is people that are involved in real estate in one form or another, and they make the mistake of not recognizing that certain things are not real estate activities. Some examples is if somebody is a mortgage broker or Airbnb rentals. Airbnb rentals for all areas of real estate tax are just a completely different animal, completely different tax treatment than long-term rentals. And so if somebody spends Airbnb, that's an active business. And time spent in that is not time spent in the real estate activity. 
hotels, hospitality, mortgage brokering, being an attorney, being a CFO of a real estate investment company. So somebody, he's spending all his time in real estate, but he's an employee of a business that happens to be involved in real estate or claiming hours in an activity in which somebody didn't materially participate. So if somebody had across real estate activities, 750 hours, however, some of those hours were an activity in which they were a limited partner, those hours would not count. So not every hour spent in a real estate activity will count towards a 750, and that's where we're seeing the pitfalls. Hmm, interesting. I would have guessed that Airbnb would have qualified as real estate activity, but you're right. It's a business. It's like running a hotel. That's exactly it. And there are so many real estate tax. It's exciting because there's so much nuance to it. And Airbnb is something people think real estate. And it truly is a real estate investment to an extent, but the tax code treats it completely differently. Right. Can it be taken retroactively? Is that a status you can claim this year for last year, if 2018 could be argued that I spent 750 hours? <laughs> it's the trouble is that you can't. And the IRS, a lot of the stuff that they get people on are technicalities. If you don't claim it, then you lose it. It's a shame when they do something. We understand there are tax laws and we want to be law-abiding citizens and maximize our tax deductions legally. But unfortunately, there's so many instances in which you kind of met the substance of what the IRS really wants, but you didn't check the right box and you lose it. So the answer is no, you can't That's take right. it retroactively. Okay. So for everybody listening to this and they find this intriguing and, and fascinating, and it's something that they're going to look into and research more in an effort to become a real estate professional, but they're not today. What are the alternatives for people to maximize their tax deductions today? I know we just touched upon this before we started recording. I'm going to just kind of hand the baton over to you and let you take it in the direction you want to go, because I'm not exactly sure what to ask you about it in order to help those people who are not real estate pros today. One thing to think about is the restriction is on claiming passive losses against active income. So the best thing is obviously have more passive income. That's an easy one, right? So if you're investing in real estate and you intend to continue investing in real estate, then your losses will be able to offset income. And what will happen is, the way it kind of plays out, the losses tend to happen in the early years of an investment. That's where you're likely to have your passive loss. And the reason for that are many fold. And whether you're using cost segregation or not, over time, you're going to be raising your rents. You're going to be doing a reposition. You're going to be renovating some value add. Inflation is going to be raising your rents, but your expenses stay flat. That's the beauty of real estate, right? It keeps up with inflation because you can raise your rent with inflation, but you don't have to rebuild the house because of inflation. So over time, as a result of the decrease in expenses and the increase in rents, you're going to start showing income. But it's in the early years that you're going to have that loss. So if you buy a property today, well, you may have a loss for the next three years, but then in year four, you're going to have to start showing taxable income. And you're not going to have anything to shield that. Well, if you buy another property next year, well, that's going to run you losses for another three years, potentially paper losses. And that will shield the income that the prior property begins to keep off. So if you're gradually accumulating a portfolio, your subsequent purchases will offset the income that you're the taxable income that you start showing 
from the preceding purchases. So it's kind of thinking about laddering your real estate acquisitions so that your subsequent acquisitions shield the income that the prior assets start to show. The simple point you're making is just keep buying real estate, keep investing. (laughs) That's the way to say it. Real estate is great (laughs) and it gets better as you increase your holdings. The more you invest, the better it gets. That's really the bottom line. The other thing to think about is it's just good to put into perspective the tax benefits of real estate. Real estate is a tax-efficient investment because of depreciation. However, many people get excited. They think real estate is the perfect thing for me because it's going to offset my high income for my W-2. For many people, that's not true. That's a misconception. It has the benefit of shielding its own income. In the early years, the depreciation will shield its own income from taxation. But as you get further on in the investment, it will show taxable income. Real estate can be tax efficient, but it's not tax free. And so for those people, it may be worth considering investing within a checkbook 401k or checkbook IRA, which will completely shield the income in many instances, especially checkbook 401k that will completely shield the investment from any taxation. So I think we need to do a separate episode on that because I already know that's a big topic. Give us a 40,000 foot answer to the question of how that works and why it would make it fully tax efficient, just so we don't leave this massive cliffhanger on this episode. (laughs) Retirement accounts, which so many of us are familiar with, and we'll have them at large brokerages or a local bank. And people think IRA, 401k, and instantaneously associate that with mutual funds and some sort of mutual fund menu that you can invest in. But from the perspective of the tax code, you can invest in just about anything and certainly invest in real estate. So IRAs, 401ks can be invested in real estate. And for some people, that's a great strategy, not for everybody. But just like IRAs and 401ks are tax protected when they invest in the stock market, they're tax shielded when they invest in real estate. So if you have real estate that's cash flowing and it's showing in taxable income, if it's inside of a tax sheltered account, it's completely protected. And that's what this is all about. Putting money in, putting real estate assets into tax sheltered accounts and making them tax free. Do you want to make a quick comment about the comment I made before we recorded about putting real estate in any kind of self-directed vehicle where you lose the depreciation that would normally flow through to your personal tax return, but being in a 401k or an IRA, you essentially build a fence around it and you trap it there. Yes. And that point is where I think it's best made is if somebody is looking to have diversified investments and they're going to have certain investments that have favorable tax attributes and certain investments that have less favorable tax attributes, the ones that you want to put into your IRA or 401k are the ones that have the least favorable inherent tax attributes because they need the most shielding. But with regards to using those losses, if people are not real estate professionals or they're not having substantial real estate holdings and successive real estate investments, those losses are really not going to benefit. They're not going to offset their W-2. And real estate itself will eventually have taxable income and it will still benefit from being shielded within an IRA or 401k. 
So I think every investor has a different profile. For the real estate professional, they make the most ideal investments for them may not be actually holding real estate inside of a 401k unless they're just being, because of their experience and their real estate skills and talents, they're just able to get such huge returns on real estate. So they want to be concentrated in real estate, then they should still do that inside of the 401k. But for others, we would say in the 401k, if you're a real estate pro, do a secured private lending, be the lender on a real estate deal because private lending has no tax shield and that really benefits from the IRA. But if somebody is not a real estate pro, they're not going to get the benefits of the losses anyway. And it's definitely a stronger consideration for them. Yeah. Topics like this can go on forever. They're very interesting. I know people find them interesting as well because everybody's looking for ways to increase their income and decrease the taxes they pay on that income. And so, you know, there's just so many nuances and techniques and and vehicles and whatnot. And I know you talk a lot about that. So I think the best thing for us to do, Bernard, is have you on again with a different topic, maybe on the 401, self-directed checkbook control 401ks and other topics like that. But for now, let me thank you for your time. Let's wrap it up here. Tell our listeners how they can find you and get more information about you, your company, your services, et cetera. Yeah, it's been great to be on the show. Best place to find out more about us is at 401kcheckbook.com. That's 401kcheckbook.com or at agentfinancial.com. So that's 401kcheckbook.com, agentfinancial.com. There are ways, multiple ways through which you can contact us at those websites. And we look forward to hearing any questions. Sounds great, Bernard. Thanks again for taking your time today. This has been very informative and I look forward to having you back on. Looking forward as well. Thank you, Marco. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you haven't subscribed, remember to hit that subscribe button and help us spread the word. Please visit us on iTunes or whatever you listen to us on and leave us a rating and review. We will see you again next week on our next episode. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.